0: If you have a Bible with you, you can turn with me to Revelation chapter 2 as we continue working through these first three chapters of the final book of the New Testament of the canon of Scripture this summer, Revelation chapter 2. Hikers are used to seeing warning signs before they set off on their favorite trails, whether it be posted at the trailhead or online before they take off. Warning signs like, beware of loose stones, and watch for bears, my wife's personal favorite. Always makes her excited to go for a walk. Or watch for coyotes here in Oakville. Or look out for falling trees. Warnings like that. However, in 2021, apparently there's a new hazard that demands caution for hikers, and that is selfies. Selfies. A couple of weeks ago, a local news outlet in New York City or in central New York posted this on their website. It says, It is that time of year when many of us head out to local parks to go for for a nice hike and enjoy the beautiful weather. Of course, you want to capture the moment by taking a selfie in front of a waterfall, a soaring view, or the edge of a cliff. However, what many people don't think about is that every year, dozens of people across the country are injured or killed by taking a selfie and not watching their footing. Many park officials have put up signs and barriers to keep hikers safe on popular trails, but many people ignore them and get as close as possible to the edges of cliffs and waterfalls to get the perfect photo. Watch for bears, watch for loose stones, watch for selfies, watch your footing as you take that picture. And wanting to capture that moment, warnings are ignored, and danger is flirted with potentially to harmful or fatal ends. Like these photogenic hikers, sometimes the church can become distracted, whether by good things, the Lord at work, the Lord answering prayers, people coming to faith, or by negative things, disunity and tension in the body. But whatever the case, the church can become distracted to to the point of ignoring warning signs that the Lord himself has put up. And Risking harm to ourselves in the process and harm to one another and harm to the mission that God himself has given us and every church as a body in this world. And in his message to the church at Pergamum in Revelation chapter 2 verses 12 to 17, our text for this morning, the glorified Christ reminds his people of the importance of watching our theological footing, watching our theological footing, even while enjoying a season of faithfulness. Now this text need to be very clear up front, is heavy. There's a severity to this text, uh, an earnestness to this text that will no doubt hit us as well today. You think of those signs warning people not to take pictures while hiking. At first glance, you think, that shouldn't need to be put up. That should be obvious. And at the same time, they need to be put up because people Go close to the waterfall, go close to the cliff. In the same way, what we're going to find in this text this morning is the glorified Christ putting up a warning sign that some of us will say, that shouldn't have to be put up. But at the same time, it does have to be put up because some of us get too close to the edge and we endanger the mission and ourselves. So that's what we're going to find today in this text. I want to read the text for us, and then we will unpack it as always. Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 12, says this. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who is killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, Because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things, sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who, in the same way, hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. The church in Pergamum was doing a lot of things well. They were doing a lot of things well. Christ begins this message, as we read, by commending them for an area of success, didn't he? We see that in verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. We could say that the trail that these believers were hiking was was beautiful, and they were making great progress along the way, but it was difficult terrain. It was a difficult hike. In fact, the text tells us that they were living in a city that was anti-Christ in its culture, perhaps more than any other city at the time. In fact, almost certainly more than any other city at the time. We're told it was where Satan's throne was, and at the end of that verse, where Satan dwells. The throne represents the epicenter of a ruling authority, doesn't it? A queen can have a great domain, a huge kingdom, where in theory her authority goes to those borders. But it's in her throne room where her, her authority is most potently felt and where her attention is most focused, right in that throne room. In some way, first century Pergamum was a place of uniquely intense satanic influence and attention. It was the locus of his power in this city. And this makes sense because we know that Satan is not the opposite of Yahweh. You know, those pictures where Jesus and Satan are arm wrestling for the fate of the world, nothing could be further from the truth. They are not opposites. God has no opposite. Whereas God is omnipresent and all-knowing, Satan is not. And so it actually makes sense that he would locate himself in one place for a time. It seems that Pergamum was his chosen venue here. And that's where these Christians lived, to whom he's writing. I think it's safe to say that at this time in church history, in the first century, when they received this letter, there was no place on earth where the battle of these two cosmic thrones raged hotter. It was right there. We have the people of God and the people of Satan doing battle, and the people of God are behind enemy lines, are they not? They are surrounded in Satan's backyard. I just wonder, does this sound relatable at all? To us today. I'm not sure I could be convinced that Oakville is Satan's throne room, but maybe he vacations here once in a while, who knows. You know, I don't think that we have garnered so much attention that the, the prince of darkness himself focuses on Oakville, but if you're like me, I kind of sense we are progressively living behind enemy lines, are we not? And so while Pergamum was living in a place where it had Satan's special attention, we today still find ourselves at, odd with an, at odds with an antichrist culture. And for the believers in Pergamum who received this message from the glorified Christ, you know, in spite of that difficult terrain though, they were, they were navigating it with faithfulness, weren't they? In that verse, they are applauded, they are commended, they remained faithful. In fact, go back to verse 13 and notice the collection of first-person pronouns as we reread the verse. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. They may have been living in Satan's backyard, but these Christians were committed to Christ. They were committed to Christ, even to the point of martyrdom, exemplified by Antipas, to whom We really don't know anything of whom we don't know anything except for what's told us here, that he was faithful unto death. One of them in their midst. It didn't require any explanation. They all knew Antipas. Hear what happened to Antipas? Right to the end, faithful to the end. These people, we're told, are clinging to Christ's name. My name, he says, meaning that they were loyal to Jesus, though it brought hardship. No, I cannot besmirch, I cannot denigrate my Savior. No matter what you do to me, I am loyal to that name, all he stands for. They were also clinging to Christ's faith, it says. That is, personal trust in Jesus, even when a brother was murdered for it. They're committed to Christ, they are faithful. And it's for this faithfulness that the believers are being commended by Christ. Imagine getting that letter being commended by Christ as a church for your faithfulness. What an encouragement. They're being commended for that. It's an area of success for this church. And As the message closes in verse 17, they're reminded of the incentives and the rewards for such faithfulness. Verse 17 again says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is Christ, inviting all to listen in. Everyone listen in, not just Pergamum. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it." He's saying, all who overcomes through faith in Christ will be given three things, given hidden manna, a white stone, and a new name. I want to be very clear that this is unclear. It's really hard to understand what he's talking about here. You know, and I'm going to give it my best shot in a moment, but, but this is difficult. I don't really, I'm not really convinced, so I'm going to give you my take on July, what is it, 11th, 2021, but July 12th, 2021, it might change a little bit. But here's what it is, but what we know for sure, so while while the exact meaning of these things is unclear, what is clear is that the people in Pergamum knew what he meant. And what else is clear is that they were rewards. They were incentive. Whatever they are, they're good. He's saying, this is what you get for overcoming. This is what you get for faith in Christ. Okay, so let me take a shot. First, the hidden manna. Well, clearly that alludes to that time in the wilderness, right? Where God provided for his wandering people in numbers and excess by giving them bread from heaven to sustain them. He's providing for them what they need to survive. All they need, in fact, miraculously. And so in Revelation chapter 2, Christ seems to be saying that like with Israel in the wilderness, in the future, he'll provide believers with all that they need. There will come a time when we are completely satiated by the hand of God himself. And why is it hidden? Because right now as we sit in this current age, it's in heaven with Christ and it is waiting to come when it is waiting to be revealed when he arrives with it. So there is coming a day when believers will be completely satiated. We will have everything we need to. He who overcomes, you will get that hidden manna. It will appear and you will be satiated. Now as for the white stone, I think this may harken back to the Ten Commandments, God's moral law that was written by God on what? On tablets of stone. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 27 in this description. Then Moses and the elders of Israel charged the people, saying, Keep all the commandments which I commanded you today. So it shall be on the day when you cross the Jordan to the land which the Lord your God gives you, that you shall set up for yourself large stones and coat them, if you have a King James Version, that's translated, whitewash them, coat them with lime, whitewash them with lime, and write on them all the words of this law when you cross over so that you may enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, a land flowing with milk and honey as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you. So it shall be when you cross the Jordan, you shall set up on Mount Ebal these stones, as I am commanding you today, and you shall whitewash them, coat them with lime. So if this is what's being referred to in Revelation. Chapter 2, then then Christ is promising a pure memorial to the moral law of God into which the glorified believer will eventually be. Romans 8 says those he justified he will glorify. There is coming a day in the future when we will be completely satisfied, God himself will give us all we need, and we will be walking monuments to the moral character of God when we are glorified. We will walk around whitewashed, pure, reflecting his character. Now the new name... This could refer to the finalization of our adoption into God's family when he has consummated all things in Romans 8 again we're told in Romans 8 verse 23 and not only this but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the spirit even we ourselves grown within ourselves waiting eagerly waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons and daughters the redemption of our body As trusting Christ, we've been brought into the family, but that finalization of adoption awaits that moment in the future when we stand before him. And we're given this new name that no one knows except the one who receives it. I think that speaks to the, the intimacy between our Heavenly Father and the one adopted. We await these things, and these are promises. These are good things, rewards, incentives for maintaining faithfulness in the present. So to summarize, when all is said and done, when overcomers, those who trust in Christ, when overcomers stand before God in the new heavens and new earth, we'll have all we need to sustain us. We'll be monuments to God's perfect morality and our new identities with him as his children will be finalized. Now, Again, ask me tomorrow, I might say something different. But what won't change is the fact that this is good news. This is reward for faithfulness. This is incentive to continue on. This is good, good news. And the believers here in Pergamum were being reminded of what they have ahead of them because they were enduring an anti-Christ culture with faithfulness to Christ. This was an area of success for this church. It was difficult terrain that they were hiking, but they were making progress, and Christ commends them. As Christians today we need to understand that faithfulness to Christ is always its own reward. It's not a means to the end. Faithfulness to Christ is the end that we are called to, to choose Christ rather than whatever culture we live in and whatever they espouse to be right is to choose Christ. And every time that you or I or our families or our church family makes a decision to follow Christ instead of the world, every time we do that, no matter how small and insignificant we think that choice may be, There are big bouts of faithfulness, and sometimes the day-to-day grind is just little acts of faithfulness, right? Little decisions to choose Christ over the world. But every time we do that, it is approved by God. It is never a waste. It is never unnoticed, and will never go unrewarded. Every single decision we make to follow Christ and not the world. Faithfulness to Christ is always its own reward. Always, always, always. That's what we're called to as homes, as individuals, and as a church. Be faithful to Christ. Every time you say no to a temptation, faithfulness to Christ. Every time. You may fall the next time, but that time is faithfulness to Christ. You get up. You go again. You ask forgiveness. He promises forgiveness. Go again. Every time you say no to temptation. Every time you choose to forgive rather than seek revenge. We live in a culture right now that reeks of revenge. There's no forgiveness in our culture today. And every time we are wronged and we say, I forgive like Christ forgave me. I forgive. Every time we do that, we are choosing Christ and not the world. And were months ago, Dr. Jim preached a sermon on forgiveness. He called it doing work with God, doing that work with God. It's between me and the Lord. Someone wrongs me, i do work with God. I'm going to forgive them. That's choosing Christ rather than the culture instead of getting our pound of flesh, getting back. No, vengeance belongs to the Lord. And choose forgiveness. Every time you seek unity rather than division, the church today sits on a powder keg of disunity. Right now, there's so many things, and I think that's always been the case. But it seems super potent right now. Every time we choose unity in the body of Christ rather than disunity, we are choosing faithfulness to Christ. Every time we pray for divine aid rather than trying to handle things ourselves, choosing Christ. Every time we teach the next generation how much better God's way is than the progress touted by this world. Every time we do that, we are choosing Christ, not the world. Every time we decide to obey God, even when we don't understand why his way is better. See, God calls us to obedience, not necessarily understanding. In our culture, we like to understand things before we obey. Okay, I I get the words that you're saying, the call to obedience, but I want to know why. I want to know why that's better. I want to know why that makes sense. And sometimes by God's grace, we get to see that. We get to see why it's better. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes God has to say, like every parent has to say sometimes, because I said so. Just trust me on this. It is better for you. Every time we choose to trust God in that way, it's an act of faith. All of these acts of faithfulness, and many, many more, all of these acts of faithfulness to Christ, his name, his faith, in the face of opposition, are never wasted. They are seen by God. They are commended, and they will be rewarded. We are called to faithfulness. That is an end in and of itself, faithfulness to Christ. Now, while the believers in Pergamum were experiencing great success in their faithfulness to Christ, and they were commended for it, there was one area in which they were vulnerable to slip and fall. they had gotten close to the edge. they had gotten close to the edge of that waterfall, edge of that cliff. And so they had a flaw to address, and that's what we're going to see next. There was a flaw to address. What if the letter ended at verse 13? What a great letter it would be. You've done this so well, even to the point of martyrdom, Signed, Jesus. Oh, great letter to receive. It doesn't end there, unfortunately. Jesus says this in verse 14 and 15, but I have a few things against you. Because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who, in the same way, hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. The contrast is jarring. If you read the letter straight through, like we did at the beginning, he moves from Antipas, a martyr in faithfulness, right to the Nicolaitans and right to Balaam. It's quite a swing, a 180 degree swing. It's jarring. Now, the account of Balaam he's looking back to, we need to re- review a little bit. We won't turn there, but it's found in Numbers chapter 22 and 23, 24 and 25. It's a, a long saga, and some of you know it well. Essentially, this is the time when Israel is conquering the promised land with God at the front of their army. They're moving through. Conquering the promised land, conquering Canaan, and they set up camp at Moab, a city that is reigned by a king named Barak. And Barak, the king, he looks out over the horizon, he sees the Israelite camp set up, and he's heard news about this Israelite camp, and their God, and it makes him nervous. How could it not? He starts to get fearful. Are they coming from Moab? Yes, they are. So he gets nervous. He starts to scheme. What can we do? And so he actually sends word to a prophet of Yahweh, a prophet of the God of the Israel sitting at his doorstep. And he says, I'm going to bring this prophet forward and ask him, I'm going to pay him. I'm going to offer him honor and money if he would just, in the name of that God, curse that God's armies. And he goes and he convinces Balaam, this prophet, to come and and look out over this massive sea of of enemies coming to his gates. And he says, you need to curse them. Call upon Yahweh, your God, their God, and curse them so they can't come against us. Balaam says, that's not how prophecy works. That's not how my office works. I can only say what God gives me to say. I'm a conduit of thus saith the Lord. I'm a conduit of his words. I can't do that. And Barak is so desperate, he says, give it a shot anyway. And Balaam opens his mouth and blesses. Israel. Barak says, no, no, try again. Blesses him. No, try again. Blesses them again. Eventually Barak Barak is infuriated at this time and fearful of this army. Says, get out of here. You don't get any money. You don't get any reward. You're useless to me. Sends him off. So at this point of the story, Balaam has done what a good prophet of the Lord should do. But Balaam wants that money. He was promised reward, he was promised fame, he was promised honor, I want that, how can I do it? I clearly can't say things the Lord isn't giving me to say, so what can I do? And he comes up with a scheme, that's the scheme mentioned here in Revelation chapter 2. It's more subterfuge. He He goes to Barak and he says what you need to do is you need to introduce idolatry, introduce immorality into the camp of the Israelites. I can't curse them for Yahweh but introduce some things of your culture into their culture and just watch it spread like wildfire. It takes them down from within. So Barak says it's an interesting idea. Moab does that. Israel falls into sin. God punishes them. And so while speaking the words of God, which is what Balaam did, while speaking the words of God, Balaam introduced elements of pagan theology for the purpose of personal gain. He got that money. He got paid. It wasn't wholesale heresy, he was saying. He blessed Israel. It wasn't wholesale heresy. He hadn't been able to do that at all. The flaw was syncretism. Maybe you've heard that word before. Syncretism is that combining or blending of different worldviews. Here's the worldview of Christianity, here's the truth, here's what God has given his people to believe and how to behave and what he's like. Here's that corpus of doctrine that makes up that worldview. Syncretism takes a little bit from Canaan, a little bit from Moab, and just brings it in and, I mean, it's not that big of a deal. They shave off some of the rough edges to make it a little bit more palatable, and they can go about interacting with some of these other cultures, not be so offensive. That's what syncretism is. It's syncing together different worldviews and watering them down and thus them eventually looking like nothing like they began. That was the sin of Balaam, as it said in Revelation chapter 2. It says, Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. He encouraged small compromises in the people of God. And that's what Christ is calling Pergamum out on. While they've been largely faithful, as we already read, they were faithful, some of them even to martyrdom, they're also tolerating unconvicted people who are promoting compromise, seeking to combine elements of the demonic culture with worship of the one true God. You just say it out loud, you think, how can you do that? What, what, What are you thinking? taking elements of Satan's backyard, Satan's throne room, and bringing it into the church and mixing it together like it's no big deal? How is that possible? But that's what was going on. And we're not told exactly what they brought in from the culture, but ultimately it doesn't really matter. We don't need to know. Just that they were not being careful with their theological footing. They were not being careful with their theological footing as they, they should have been. And as the story of Balaam illustrates that can lead to devastating results. It takes it down from within. What a clever strategy of the enemy, no? It's not a wholesale heresy. We can't do that. We're speaking for the Lord. But insipid little sneaking in, chipping away at the foundation. No one would give someone a peanut butter sandwich with just a little bit of rat poisoning in it, right? Just a little bit, just a touch. Compared to the whole, I mean, it's mostly peanut butter and jam what's the harm? The harm is that little bit gets through it all, and it's fatal. It kills. It tears down. It's just like false teaching, syncretism. We have this beautiful theological sandwich the Lord has given to us, and we want to enjoy it, and we want it to protect us and sustain us. But when we allow bits of the world to come into the church, we're sprinkling rat poisoning into this meal that God has given us. as Andrew mentioned a couple of weeks ago, as we keep reading this text, the Nicolaitans, we don't know a whole lot about them, but it seems to say in this text that they were doing similar things to Balaam. They were, they were characterized by sloppy theology and, and licentious living. What does it matter? Right, what does it matter? Bring some things in from the culture. It's not that big of a deal. I mean, we're still mainly united, right? It's not that big of a deal. It's licentiousness. And Christ condemns it here, and he condemns the ones tolerating it as well. Jesus commends this church for a significant area of success. He does. They were being faithful to Christ in Satan's backyard, but there was also a flaw to address. There was something they were doing wrong. They're tolerating people in their midst who, while perhaps saying the right things about Christ, are also incorporating anti-Christ thinking into their faith and spreading it through the church. And this is a risk in every age, on every continent, in every church, in every home, and in every life. It's always a risk. It's always a risk, whether intentionally or unintentionally, we all face the temptation to soften convictions and to capitulate to our culture. Just just a touch, just a little bit. There's always that risk. I was just thinking this morning about what that might look like in our culture and what are some of the things in the world around us that we are tempted at sometimes to just soften a little bit on what God has said. And we sometimes say things, well, God isn't super clear on this issue. You know, the world in which we live today has very different views of, of sexuality than God does, don't they? Well, it's just physical. No one's getting hurt. Isn't that the mantra of the day? As long as no one's getting hurt, then it should be okay. Well, who says no one's getting hurt? That's the question we should ask. God says people are getting hurt. So the, the, the world around us has this view of sexuality and the church at times just says, oh, we, I mean, give and take, right? We want to win some people, we'll soften a little bit. What well, God is teaching here, it's kind of offensive to a world that thinks differently. We'll shave off some of those rough edges. Make ourselves a little bit more accommodating. To, we want to win them after all. Or the world's view of justice right now. The world's view of justice, as I mentioned earlier, is not the biblical view of justice. It's not the same thing. And when we listen to all the cultural commentators yap on about what justice looks like in this world, it starts to seep in and we start or we risk getting close to that cliff and start viewing God's view of justice, viewing the Bible through that lens of cultural justice, which looks nothing like biblical justice. It's dangerous. We're letting that seep into the church and you can see how it would tear things apart like it did the Israelite camp at the foot of Moab. We talked about this in Sunday school this morning, authority. Where does authority lie? I mean, there's a wholesale attack on the whole concept of authority in our culture today. And We as Christians have a very clear view of authority. God made us, he reigns, he's in charge, he has spoken. We're creatures, he's the creator, we listen to him. That's offensive to the world. And yet that softening of authoritative lines of what it looks like to submit to someone who has authority is just anathema in our culture today, and sometimes that can seep in if we're not careful. That's introduced into the church culture. Or how about eternity? You know, what is our view of eternity compared to the culture around us? How do they view eternity? Live for today, they say. That's what we live for. And Christians say, what? That is not the view of God. He says, we have, this is a vapor, this life. We have eternity in his presence, and we plan for that, and we live it with eternity in mind. See, there's just a few examples of, of, of things in our culture today that are so potent and we're surrounded by it and we need to be careful that we don't tiptoe close to the edge to get that selfie. You know, we're, we're getting close, we're getting comfortable. We're getting comfortable, we need to have our guard up. This church in Pergamum, they were doing a lot of things well but they had one flaw. They were tolerating some soft peddling of God's view of the world, God's view of people, God's view of, of idolatry, God's view of promiscuity. They were soft peddling it. And it really doesn't matter their motives, does it? We just want to be like the world so we can win the world. It doesn't matter, God says. You're playing with fire. Things are more powerful than you. You need to understand that. And the ways we are tempted to compromise today, and listen, I feel it. I feel it. We all feel it if we're honest, those temptations. It would just be easier to not say something then. It'd be easier to, to change my view just a little bit, to soften that, or to say it. it's not that big, but it's not central to the Christian faith. We like to create these theological triages, right? Here's the the core things, and certainly that's true in Scripture. I pass on to you what is of first importance, primary importance. There are core doctrines, but that doesn't mean the other doctrines are unessential, and not worth fighting for. The ways we're tempted to compromise and blend and soften are countless. Make no mistake, like Balaam, when we do that, it is always for personal gain. We may, may not be getting paid for it, but there's always personal gain. We soften. I'm going to soften this view of sexuality. Well, what does it bring me? It brings me a momentary respite from oppression. It brings me a momentary time out with the world. The problem is, as we've seen, the world keeps wanting more, more, more. We cannot give up enough to a culture that hates Christ. It's not that we're thinking that they should believe these things. They can't believe these things until they're regenerate. They need the gospel. But for the people of God, we want to be very cautious, giving way and watching our theological footing. It's almost like, to mix metaphors tragically, it's like we're out in an ocean in a boat. And the boat is is the doctrine God has given us. And it keeps us safe and it's getting us across the water to safety on the shore. And yet every time we entertain worldly doctrine and worldly ideology, just entertain them, just tolerate them, it's like a hole pops up in the bottom of the boat starts spraying up. And if, uh, if we keep waiting, it fills up the boat. If we keep being soft on doctrine, another hole pops, another one, another one. We don't have enough fingers to plug them all. They're all too far apart, and before we know it, the boat isn't a whole lot of good. Pergamum was doing this. They weren't plugging the holes. They had become distracted on their hike, and they had drawn too close to the cliff, ignoring the warning signs. And this was their flaw to address. And, and the text itself tells us how they were to do that. In verse 16, it says, Therefore repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Which is the word of God, the sword, it's truth. I will make war against them. You need to understand that lies are an affront to the very character of God. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. When he comes with truth, he has to deal with falsehood. He says, Deal with it. Repent, he says. They've got to repent. They've got to see their error and turn back to full commitment to Christ. They've got to rid their lives of the syncretism, the false teaching, and the compromise that had set in while they were unaware. And as we look at this text in in closing and and see this repentance, repentance has a few characteristics that I want want to point out here just in this text. First, the repentance that they're called to, it was with accuracy, right? It wasn't just some vague repent of worldliness. There's no Balaam. It was very exact. Here are the issues that you need to repent of. And so too with us today. If there are issues, we need to be on the lookout for exact things with accuracy. Here's what we need to turn back up. Here's the hole in the bottom of the boat we need to plug. It's with accuracy. They're also to repent with urgency, right? Christ says, do it quickly. Why? Because I'm coming back soon. Don't let it sit. Do it now. You're sinking. And do it with intensity. Full turn. Take it seriously. I really like this one. I feel like the repentance here is also with sympathy. It's with sympathy. Again, look at verse 16, it says, I'm coming and I will make war against who? Against them. Against those who have compromised, against those who are holding to these false teachings. So for their sake, for the sake of those people straying, repent because I'm coming for them. And so it's with sympathy that they are called to repent with urgency and accuracy and intensity. For the sake of the brethren that are being, that are in the crosshairs of the coming Christ. And when he comes, it will be with war. The this, this church has a lot going for it here in Pergamum. It was commended for a great area of success, but they had a flaw to address. They had some, of their, some in their midst who were compromising truth, and they had to repent of that apathy, that carelessness. And they had to realign themselves with total commitment to Christ. I told you, it's a heavy passage. I'm taking selfies at the edge of the cliff. It's nerve-wracking, but you want to snatch those people from the cliff, right? That's why you put up the warning signs. It may seem obvious, of course. Of course don't let false teaching into the church of course, of course don't stand near a waterfall that has a 20 foot drop taking a selfie, of course don't do that but we have to be warned by Christ sometimes, we have to be warned by people sometimes because we get distracted, so Christ is warning here, essentially Christ is telling the church at Pergamum and the church at Oakville as well to purge or be purged, that's what it is it's harsh, he says get your house in order, purge that compromise from your midst, purge that syncretism or I'm coming and I'll do it for you Purge or be purged, deal with the leaks in your ship or Christ is going to do it when he returns. And it will be war with the sword of his mouth, with truth. It will be swift and total and final. You know, the the future of our church family, it depends not on a certain program. It depends not on a certain ministry that we lack or we have or we need to get up off the ground or anything like that. That's not the future of any church. That's not the future of the church. The future of the church depends on the fidelity to the teachings of Christ. That's it. That's how we will be measured in the end. How faithful are we to Christ? And the great thing about that is, when we are faithful to Christ's teachings and guard the deposit once for all delivered to the saints, when we do that, all those other things we want to do, be a light in the community, minister to people, to the lost, minister to the hurting, all of those things flow naturally out of a clinging to that truth. But we have to put the cart before the horse. We, have to, or we don't want to put the cart before the horse, rather. We want to keep it in right order. If we compromise, if we tolerate any teachings of the world and and allow them to color or dictate what we do, it will be a matter of time before we sink. That's what Christ is warning this church of and warning us as well. We must purge our lives of any syncretism and realign ourselves with what the believers in Pergamum were commended for before their rebuke. Again, what if the letter had ended at verse 13? I mean, that's what we want, right? Faithfulness at all costs, just like like Antipas. Be faithful, sign Jesus. Repent. Look for those compromises. Look for areas where Balaam is sneaking in and saying, just introducing things into the church that will tear us down from within. We need to purge or be purged. So I want to suggest three ways in closing that we can do that very quickly. First, I want to encourage you this week and in the weeks to come, pray for the elders of this church. This is one of the main bullet points on their job description, is to guard the church against falsehood, to monitor what comes in, it's a heavy job. It's a daunting job. Sometimes it means tough conversations. And it definitely takes godly wisdom to know how to protect the church from not all the time full out heresy, which is certainly on the job description, but sometimes just little tiny compromises. Some of the elders' job is to pull people back from the cliff before they fall over. So pray for the elders, for discernment, for boldness, for sympathy, for all that we need to do this. It's a heavy job and one that we will answer for. So if nothing else, pray for us. A bit of a self-serving application. Pray for us, please. I hope that you do that anyway. So that's the first thing. Pray for your elders, the people who will give an account and give guard for your souls. Secondly, examine your life. Even just this week, take a look at your life. The the famous computer adage, garbage in, garbage out, is true of our lives. We've mentioned that before. I can't fall prey to syncretism if I'm not letting that garbage into my life to begin with. It's really hard to compromise the truth if I'm not allowing those things. So just take, examine your life. Take stock of your life. What are the voices being allowed into your life? What are you watching? What are you listening to? What's coming in? How is that coloring the way that you view God's world? Examine your life, and finally examine your home and your church, and not in a cynical, critical way, like looking out around the church trying to find the falsehood and find the compromise and call it out. Not like that, but with with care and sympathy your home are there any ways in my home and in my friend circles in my workplace that that there's some compromise thinking that I have something to do that I can pray about I can address anything in our church family that you see that's compromising that that we just might be getting a little too close to the cliff we might not even be in sin yet but we're flirting with disaster perhaps so those are the three things you can do this week as we Feel the weight of this text, and it is a weighty text, a purge or be purged. We want to pray for the leaders of this church, and honestly, the leaders of the churches around us as well. Examine our lives and examine our homes and our churches. You know, Christ wrote that first part of the letter, and we want that to be attributed to us. We want to be faithful, faithful, faithful. Why? Because the reward and the incentive that lies ahead of us, right? This satiation, being satisfied in the end, having that new name finally adopted and getting that white stone being monument to God's perfect character. That's what lies ahead of us. So we have the boldness, we have the courage to stand up against compromise. We don't want to be a church that compromises. You know, there's two things that happen to churches that compromise, and only two things. They become irrelevant, and by God's grace they disappear. That's it. The lampstand is removed. Sure, there may be shells, whitewashed tombs around that have compromised. We don't want to be one of them by God's grace. And the only way we can do that is by applying text like this. We want to, for years and years to come, be a beacon of light in a dark world. Not for our sake, but for Christ's sake and for the sake of the lost people around us, as Mike prayed earlier. We've got to watch our doctrine. Purge or be purged. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us do that now.